Let us pray. Transform our minds and our hearts that we might love fully and freely. And hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Hear now a reading from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is the word of the Lord. My husband James is a bird lover. Loves birds. All kinds of birds. He spends a lot of time and energy trying to attract as many different kinds of birds as he can to our yard by using different bird foods, different types of bird feeders, different types of bird houses, bird baths, all to get as many birds as he can to our yard. And he does a great job. We have tons of birds that come hang out in our yard. Thing is, about a year ago, all of those birds began to attract a hawk to our yard. The hawk saw all those little birds as very tasty little treats. And so he would begin, or she, I don't know, would circle our yard and then swoop down. And in that instant that the hawk would swoop down, this whole flock of birds would levitate simultaneously and swoop away. I mean, they just disappeared. It was amazing to watch. And then as the hawk flew away, all of the birds would begin to meander back out and start eating again. Those birds were hyper aware of that hawk. And that was a good thing because for them, it was a matter of survival, right? Here's the thing though, they respond exactly the same way when my husband James opens the back door to walk out there to refill all their feeders. And he's not a threat to them. In fact, he's the one that's making it such a delightful treat to be in our yard but they don't know the difference. All they know is he's not like them and he's pretty big, so better be safe than sorry. They run away. Today we continue our worship series, Unafraid, based on Adam Hamilton's book, um, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. And today we're talking specifically about fear of the other. Because us humans, we're really not all that different from those birds that gather in my backyard. I mean, we can be hyper aware of threats. We can even exaggerate threats or misinterpret what is actually a threat, just like those birds. We can catastrophize our fears. We talked about that last week. And we also talked about this acronym that when we catastrophize um, our fears, false events begin to appear real. One of the things that causes us to catastrophize our fears is ignorance. We tend to be more afraid of the things that we don't know, or more to the point, given our specific theme today, um, we tend to be more afraid of the people we don't know. Bishop Will Willimon published a book in 2016 titled Fear of the Other. He said that he published the book in response to the presidential nominations process that was unfolding just prior to that, uh, just prior to the 2016 elections, he noted that the majority of political ads tended to leverage our fears into votes. 
candidates spent significantly more money on ads spinning the catastrophic consequences should their opponent get elected than they did spending money on ads painting a picture of all the good that would ensue if they were to get elected. They did it for one reason. They know that fear motivates. The word of the year in 2016, according to dictionary.com, was xenophobia. Xeno, or xenos, is from the Greek, means the other, and phobia, of course, is fear of, so xenophobia is fear of the other. And it was this fear that candidates played on most often when they were seeking our votes um, in their bid for the nominations for their respective parties that year. And our fear is easy to play a lot of times because oftentimes we don't know enough to not be afraid. Most of us rely on a single news source or at least a single perspective and so it's hard to know sometimes what information is true. We don't know where to look to find what we would consider reliable truth, or sometimes we just don't have time to do all that research. And then there's some of our fears that we learn so early in our lives, they've become ingrained. We've learned these things either from our parents or maybe from the culture around us, but they've become so ingrained that we don't think to question them. I was raised in Charlotte, North Carolina, and in Charlotte, there's this particular section of town that I was warned to never go to because all sorts of bad things could happen to a white girl over there. It was a fear that was based in racial prejudice, and it's not unique to me. Adam Hamilton brings it up in his book that there is a street in Kansas City that is a dividing line, and he was warned growing up not to ever go on the other side of that street because you never knew what might happen to a white boy over there. The interesting thing is that in talking to people who lived in those areas of town where we were warned away, they heard the same thing that we did. Don't go over there where all those white people are because you have no idea what might happen. It could be very dangerous for you. You could be harassed, arrested, or worse. Lately, what we hear a lot of is don't let those immigrants in here because who knows what they might do. They're dangerous. And here's the thing. When we are afraid of other people, it's pretty unlikely that we are going to behave in ways that are admirable. When we act or react in fear, it's not usually our best self that we put forward. In his very first inaugural address, President Franklin D. Roosevelt said the famous words, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which of course is not totally true. Um, there are some things that we need to be cautious of, but he was attempting in his context to calm the fears of a nation that was living deep in the depression. The irony is, is that just a few years later, this same president authorized by means of executive order the internment of more than 100,000 Japanese Americans following the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was a move based on 
the unsubstantiated fear that was prevalent in our country at that time that Japanese Americans couldn't be trusted. Today, we fear Muslims. There are a billion and a half Muslims in the world. And because of the actions of a relative few of those who have committed terrorist acts, we globalize our fears to include all Muslims. We still wrestle with issues of race. Some of us are afraid of our political opponents. Some of us are afraid of people who have different sexual orientations or sexual identities. What do we do to face these fears? How do we address them so that we don't act on those fears and end up causing harm to other people? Well, one tool that the therapeutic community would recommend is called cognitive restructuring. And the idea behind cognitive restructuring is that everything that we feel is preceded by a thought. And so if we want to change what we're feeling, we need to examine what it is that we're thinking. And so most often, many of the fears that we hold, the fears that drive our irrational actions, we just need to confront them with the facts. We need to learn more about the underlying issue that is causing fear in our lives. When it comes to fear of the other, we have to challenge all of the assumptions upon which we're basing our fear. So here's an example. Surveys indicate that most Americans think that violent crime is on the rise in America. And so as a result, people are very focused on defense, right? We put these big security systems in our homes, we live in gated communities, we lock our doors, we don't go out after dark, and the sale of firearms and ammunitions has grown by more than 150% in the last decade. And I'm reckoning that that is not because there's a whole lot more hunters out there. However, if you look at the statistics, we are safer today than we have been in the last 20 years. Violent crime rates have dropped by more than half since the early 1990s. And the murder rate has dropped all the way down to the levels they were in 1964. And here's the other thing. The people who are most afraid of violent crime or afraid that crime is rising in the United States are people who tend to live in the suburbs. And those are the same people who are least likely to be affected by violent crime should it occur. But because of sensationalized news reports that run 24 hours a day, because of cultural precedent, and because of political leveraging of our fears, we tend to grossly exaggerate the real threat of violent crime in America. So cognitive restructuring says that if we arm ourselves with actual facts and are intentional about implementing tools that might help us remember those facts, particularly during times of high stress, then we can calm our fears. And we can act in ways that are more consistent with who we are and with what is real. This works when it comes to the fear of the other, too. I mean, the most powerful thing that we can do when we're afraid of others is to get to know them. And not just statistically, but to find ways to encounter people who are different from us, to spend time with them, to build relationship, 
with those that we're afraid of or those that we are suspicious of. Jesus said, you have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say that you should love your enemy. And when Jesus says this, he's not talking about that we should develop some warm, fuzzy feelings and want to hug everybody that we see that's different from us. He's talking about something that's actionable. We are to love through our actions. We're to pray for those who we perceive to be our enemies. We are to do things that would bless those who we perceive to be our enemies. Because here's the thing. When we become driven by false or exaggerated fear, we tend to lose sight of the real threat. How many of y'all remember the story of Henny Penny? Did any of y'all hear that story when you were growing up? Okay, so you remember there was this chicken? Was it a chicken? Henny Penny? She's like scratching in the dirt, eating, and all of a sudden something falls and hits her on the head and she looks up and she screams, the sky is falling. And so she runs around to all of her friends. She finds, I think, a rabbit and a rooster and, I don't know, all kinds of animals. And she's telling them all, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We need to go tell the king. We need to go tell the king. And they're running around. She's gathering all these people. The hysteria is growing. Until finally, Mr. Fox comes along and he says, oh, I can help you. I know a shortcut to where the king is. So he gathers up all these little tasty morsels, and leads him straight to his den, where he eats them for dinner. So, <laughs> he does. So in that particular story, Henny Penny and all of her friends get so worked up about a fear that is not real that they lose sight of what the real threat is, which is this fox that is luring them away into their den. The real threat as I see it, when it comes to fear of other, is the threat that we might lose our capacity to express compassion for others. Bishop Will Willimon also points out that as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is able to overcome a whole host of human dispositions, one of which is fear of the other. In the New Testament, Jesus brings together all kinds of people from lots of different points of view. I mean, all you have to do is look at the 12 disciples to see some of those differences. They came from very different walks of life. There was one, Matthew, you'll recall, he was a tax collector, Jewish man tax collector, and though he was not thrilled that the Romans occupied his homeland, his approach was that he was going to cooperate to the best of his ability, and he was going to try to get along, and so he was one of the people that helped to collect taxes on behalf of the Romans. Meanwhile, another of Jesus' apostles was Simon, and he was a member of the Zealot Party, which was a small group of uh, Jewish people who did not like the idea of the Romans occupying their land at all, and they felt like the right approach was to kick them all out. And they were willing to fight to bring that about. Both of them, called by Jesus, both of them followed Jesus. Though I imagine they had some pretty lively political conversations along the way. 
But I imagine that as a result of those conversations and as a result of the many meals that they shared together and all the time they spent with each other, that they also grew in their love and compassion for one another. We hear in John, in 1 John 4, that there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. As we grow in love for others, we no longer fear them. Christian congregations, according to Will Willimon, and I agree with him, can be and should be a witness to the world that in Christ, it is possible for people from many diverse backgrounds to come together in intimate spaces and grow an intimate relationship and in love for one another. To be the church, we should be doing that work. We should be working intentionally to get to know and understand and express compassion for, to love those who are different from us, those who maybe scare us. I want to challenge each and every one of us. One of the things uh, that makes it difficult for us to see the other more clearly is that we're not familiar with their perspective. And one of the reasons for that is because we have a tendency to gravitate toward a specific news source or a specific perspective. I want to challenge all of us in the coming week to spend a little bit of time engaging with a news source that we would not normally engage with, with an open heart and an open mind to try and understand better the perspective of those that we don't agree with. And I would also encourage each of us to pay attention over the next week. Are there moments when we find ourselves feeling afraid of a specific person or group of people? And then challenge that in ourselves. Why is it that we feel fear when we encounter this particular person or this particular group of people? And how can we learn more about this particular group of people so that maybe we can have greater understanding of them? Maybe we try to intentionally meet with someone. I heard a, a TED Talk yesterday um, from a woman who was the first woman elected to the Danish parliament who was from Muslim immigrant uh, background. And when she became elected to the parliament, she began to receive all kinds of hate mail. Most of it was via email. Initially, she would delete them because she just didn't want to deal with it, but a friend of hers advised her to start saving them. She might need it as evidence if something were to happen. So she started to save all of those emails. And then later, another friend said, you know, I wonder what would happen if you actually called up one of these people and just talked to them, maybe asked to meet with them. Scared her to death, but she thought, I'm going to try that. She went back through her email. She found the person who had sent her the most hate mail, and she called him on the phone and introduced herself and said, you know, I would love to just meet with you, have a cup of coffee, talk. And the person agreed to it, and they met. I think this was a huge act of courage on her part. They got together. They spent about two and a half hours together. She said that they learned, she, she, actually, she said, much to my disappointment, we had a lot in common. <laughs> and, uh, so she found common ground with this person. She could no longer demonize the person, though she still disagreed with some of the behaviors and the words that the person spoke. 
She learned to grow in understanding and love and compassion. They even laughed together. They enjoyed the time that they spent together. And in doing these things and being intentional about challenging our fears and confronting the people, or not confronting, but engaging with the people that we are afraid of, we remember what David says to us in Psalm 27 that we read earlier. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We talked about a spiritual practice last week. I want to introduce another one today. It's called Lectio Divina. And it literally means um, divine reading. And it's a practice of prayer where you pray with a scripture. You can take the psalm that we read today or another um, that is reassuring to you. And you pray through that scripture, speak it aloud, read it aloud three different times, each time pausing to see how that scripture encounters your heart and your mind and your life. You start by praying to God, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Put yourself in an attitude of reception and openness. And then you begin to notice which words or phrases or images from that scripture stand out to you. How do they instruct you? How do they calm you? How do they comfort you? I would ask you to try that this week. I find it very helpful in my own prayer life. As we close today, I want us to assure ourselves with this litany that God is with us always. When the wind is strong and the waves are high, remember the words of Jesus. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When our courage fails and we feel threatened, remember the words of Jesus. Take heart, it is I. When praying for those who hurt or persecute us seems beyond our capacity, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. During the offertory, take a moment to reflect on what individual or group of people you might be afraid of. You can take the sticky note that's in your bulletin and you can write a word or a phrase or draw a picture that represents that. And then if you want to, you can put it on our prayer wall in the back. We've been gathering up all of those fears and lifting them in prayer circle on Wednesday at one o'clock. I invite you to do that.